Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Joe. Joe's going to tell us all about his life. So Joe, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you can describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. So, welcome, Joe. Tim, thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Uh, not too bad at all. So, I am, uh, I'm in the U.S. I'm currently about 45 minutes from where I was born and grew up, which was in a small town that was a suburb of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The town's called Lansdale. Uh, I was a 1960s baby. Um, gosh, my childhood and what was it like? Um, it was kind of very typical 1960s suburban America. Uh, my father worked in a factory. My mother was a secretary. Uh, I was able to walk to school until I made it to high school. Uh, and then, you know, took a bus. So, um, you know, it was uh, really kind of an unremarkable childhood, I guess, in that sense. Um, I, you know, ultimately, I guess, was was rather privileged, uh, had things pretty easy. So what was the neighborhood like? Oh, it was uh, kind of very, very typical of that time period for suburban America. Uh, it was... Um, I would say middle class, uh, white American, uh, very little diversity. Um, I'm actually very proud of the neighborhood now. Uh, I don't get back that often, but when I do, it's an extremely diverse neighborhood. Um, definitely much more interesting in that regard. But um, it was quiet. We were able to, um, you know, play in the street. So we played baseball and football and all that kind of stuff in the street. Uh, didn't really have to worry about traffic. Um, so, so when everybody, when a car did, so when a car right. did come along, you say, "Car." That's so it. Exactly. So yep. We went off to the side, and they said, "Yep, hey, mom." Yep. <laughs> and and everybody everybody knew each other. You know, all the parents knew all the kids. So you know, we get up in the morning, eat breakfast, leave the house, and be back in time for lunch or dinner. And a lot of times we'd wind up, you know, eating eating lunch at a friend's house. But you know, the deal was we had to be back for dinner. And my yeah. parents had a simple rule: it's like you know, just tell us where you're going to be, and if we go to look for you there, you better be there. Um, because obviously this is, you know, pre smartphones and pagers and everything else. Um, so, you know, we, we pretty much had the days to ourselves and we, we did our own thing. Yeah. So you riding bikes around in that area? So. Oh yeah. Yep. Riding bikes, playing all kind of games. Yeah. I kind of picture the sort of street that you live on is one of these big wide open streets with, with sort of detached houses all the way down with the big long drives and, and to earn uh, a few, you, now you we're a little, little, we're a little more middle class. We were um, duplexes, so small driveways, um, and you know connected houses in pairs. Uh, so you were, you know, you were fairly close to your neighbors. Uh, wasn't like a, a row home, but mm -hmm. um, they were fairly close at the time. 
um, these types of houses in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, when these houses were built. They were very popular on the East Coast, very popular kind of suburban homes. Um, it wasn't really, at least here in the U.S., it wasn't really until um, kind of middle 70s that people decided they were kind of tired of living on top of each other. And that's when everybody had to have kind of the really big homes with four and five bedrooms. And then property values went up and then everybody still wanted big homes with four and five bedrooms, but they built them on little tiny one acre lots. So you had huge homes that you could essentially spit and hit the house next to you, <laughs> even, even though, even though you're in what looks like it should be a, you know, a house on three or four acres of property. It's not, it's, you know, yeah. um, so, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, for me, I enjoyed being close to the neighbors. I enjoyed having people around. My friends were around. Um, you know, so it, it never, never phased me. Hmm. So what was the, the walk to school like then? How far was that? Um, grade school. So what, uh, kindergarten through six, it's very short. It was like uh, a 10 minute walk. So it was, uh, real, real simple. Um, the junior high school that I went to, so that was seven, eight, nine. That was literally only about a quarter of a mile further from my grade school. So, very easy, very simple. Um, you know, generally when you're walking to and from school, you know, there's loads of other kids walking. Um, so nothing, nothing particularly adventurous about it. It really was, you know, pretty simple. Mm. So. so this is the, 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 the pre driving everywhere. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In <laughs> fact, um, I think when, when I started, when I started grade school, I'm pretty sure my family didn't own a car. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't until I was further into grade school that, that my father got a car. Hmm. Um, so what was, uh, what was the, 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 the sort of the, the curriculum like that you were doing? Was it like the, the, the state school? Um, yeah, I mean, these were, these were public schools. So, um, you know, it's really very generic. Um, you know, there were, sadly, I'm old enough, you know, before they, they did kind of like the advanced classes and all that kind of stuff where, you know, kids would test. And if they were really smart, they would take like an advanced class. That kind of stuff didn't come into play until I was in middle school. It was the first time that there were any like advanced classes that kids could, could test into. So the curriculum itself was, you know, very basic, very generic. You know, you did your reading, your writing, your arithmetic. You had recess every day. You had gym class and art class, you know, once or twice a week. Hmm. So what was your gym like? What, what's, did you play a lot uh, It's school? usually like playground games. We had a small gym in our grade school, but that also doubled as the cafeteria. Um, so depending on, you know, what period you had gym, you you may not – be able your class may not be able to use the cafeteria so usually gym took place out outside on the playground mm -hmm. uh it could be anything from dodgeball to just you know doing uh crazy little fitness challenges and things like that nothing mm -hmm. nothing particularly fancy yeah so what was your favorite subject who um when i i i think most of the time my favorite subject was history um Definitely by the time I got to middle school, um, history was my favorite subject. Uh, I remember seventh grade, 
I had a teacher that I was afraid of. Everybody was afraid of this guy. Uh, <laughs> he was he was tough. That was like his his mo. He was he was a tough guy. And this was you know this was a time period where um, corporal punishment was still still a thing. So you know um, you could get smacked. You could get hit with a paddle. Uh, that kind of stuff. So he kept a paddle by his desk. Um, guys that would act up in class would have to do push-ups next to his desk. He told us on the first day of school, uh, you will have homework every single day. And mm. he kept his promise. Um, but what was great about the guy is he was passionate about what he taught. And he taught uh, the American Revolution. So he he did an incredible job of really kind of bringing it to life for us. And um, I have the good fortune of being in a suburb of Philadelphia. We're close to a lot of the key locations where things happened during the American Revolution. So we were able to do field trips and go and see a lot of these places at the time. Um, so that kind of also became kind of my favorite time in history in terms of what I studied and I think it's it's the one that I've retained the most information about because he didn't he didn't teach it by just having memor having us you know memorized dates and yeah. all that kind of stuff. He really taught it so that we could understand it and and understand what it was like. Um, so I, I think for that reason, history has always kind of had a a special place for me because if you can really kind of connect the dots to your experience, to what the experience must have been like. It's hard for it not to be fascinating. Yeah. So did you, did you see some of the reactment groups and stuff? Like, was oh, that yeah. Popular yeah. And, I mean, that was a, a big thing because I was 16 years old in 1976, which was our bicentennial. So uh, the reenactments were huge at that point in time. And, you know, they were happening everywhere. I, I lived only 30 minutes from Valley Forge. Um, so, you know, I was very close to all of these, these spots where, um, you know, you read about in the history books and you learn about it in the history yeah. books. So. Yeah. So history is a bit of a passion of mine as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, this summer, um, the wife and I are going off to uh, France, Spain, uh, and we're going to visit some of the Peninsula War battlefield cool. sites of uh, Salamanca, Talavera, Badajoz, Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, Very cool. Uh, and then we're going to pop down to Gibraltar uh, and then nip across the Tangier for the day and then uh, <laughs> and then work our way back up through Porto and uh, and back across. So, yeah, we're looking awesome. forward to that. Awesome. Yeah. Um, right then. So going into high school. Mm-hmm. How was your high school? Did you you said you had to jump on a on a bus? Is that like one of these big yellow buses? Yeah, it was uh, a, a, a yellow American school bus. Um, high school was great for me, but I had a very non typical high school experience. Um, I got into photography very young. I got my first camera when I was eleven in seventh grade. Uh, ninth grade, actually. Sorry, ninth grade uh, is when I had my first picture published um hmm. and so by the time i got to high school i was already doing freelance work for the local newspaper i was doing all of the public relations photography for my school district so 
I had a, a kind of a really good scenario. I would frequently get a phone call in the morning uh, from the school district's PR guy. And, you know, basically he would say, hey, listen, um, do you have a test first period? And I'm fine. My answer was no. He's like, great. Don't go to the high school. I want you to go to this elementary school and you're going to take a picture at eight o'clock in the morning and then we'll drive you over there. Um so, you know, they had kind of worked it out with my teachers and my principals. I had good grades. And so the deal mm-hmm. was, as long as I could maintain my grades, if I had an opportunity to go do a photography assignment, even for the local newspaper, that was the only excuse I needed to miss class and I could go do the assignment. So I was really, really lucky that the school kind of supported this passion that I had and, and supported the opportunities that I had created. And I kept my grades up. Nobody ever complained. And I went and did what I did. So um, I, that really was kind of the, the launching point for my career because I was working already at, at that point. Yeah. You know. So from, from, from the point of taking the pictures, I mean, that's mm-hmm. one thing. Right. How did you go about the developing? Did you get so? Did you have to take it to the local chemist to get done, or did oh, you? Oh no, 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 no! I I did all my own. own. Um, I started doing my own processing pretty early uh, in the learning curve. I got my first camera when I was eleven. Probably by the time I turned twelve, my dad had helped me build a darkroom in our in our basement. So I I had a darkroom. I did all my own developing. The only stuff that you would send away would be color film and color slides. Mm. You know, we always joke that that's basically when you would take pictures and then you would wait seven days to find out how bad you suck uh, because you, know, <laughs> you had to wait for him to come back to say, ah, oh, man, that was not a good day, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I started with the darkroom work really very early on. And I actually – I really enjoyed it. I, I as It's funny because I will sit here and I will tell you how much I enjoyed it. I'm so glad I did it. And then people will say, well, you know, if you had the chance to go work in the darkroom now, would you? And my answer is, hell no, no way. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm really glad that I did. Like, I sincerely, I, it was just awesome. Um, but I ultimately don't have the patience. So mm. digital photography is perfect for me um because you know i can shoot i can sit down in front of my computer and in moments you know it's done without the hassle of having to maintain chemicals and and everything else so um and you know don't even necessarily need a dedicated space i can take my computer with me anywhere and i can work on my pictures um so i'm i very much like the advancements that we have but i'm i'm glad because what it did do is it it helped me learn a, a discipline in photography. Um, it helped me learn to pay attention to details, which is extremely important for consistent and good photography. Um, and those are things that photographers very much struggle with today because yeah. there isn't a part of the process that forces that learning curve. So I, I was very lucky to you know learn that way because I think it definitely made a, a difference, at least for me, made a big difference. So while, while you're doing all this, uh, going through school, you're getting the little assignments from the local rag. Mm-hmm. Did you have a, actually a class? How did, how did you learn the skills? Did, did you learn it from books or did you have a class in it? 
So I didn't learn it. I, I so I didn't learn it from books. We'll start there. Um, all the books. This would have been like 1971 through 1978 when I graduated high school, and pretty much all the photography books at that time were black and white, written and published in the 1950s and 60s. They were huge and dry and boring and all about rules and more about photo history than technique. Mm -hmm. um, there was nothing creative about them. There was nothing that was new and different. And so I had no patience for the books. Um, I did not take any classes. Well, I took, <laughs> I took one photography class in high school. Uh, it's kind of a very long story. So the short version is I took the class I failed the class <laughs> out of stubbornness with the teacher, but on my final report card, I got an A on the class because the principal of the school reversed the grade. And, and so it, it was, you know, just kind of a, a butting of heads with the, the teacher at the end of the school year. And I refused to do an assignment the way she wanted it done. Um, and, and what it was is she wanted me to work in the darkroom at school because she had never seen me work in the darkroom. She said, for all I know, your dad does, you're developing for you. And I said, look, I, I do all the work for the school district. I'm working for a school newspaper. My father is not developing my film. And the reason I wouldn't work in the, in the darkroom at school was because unfortunately she did not manage it very well. So kids always screwed around in there. Kids would come in, flip the lights on, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to risk having my work ruined. So I refused to do it. I turned the assignment in, did the assignment. But so anyway, that's, so I only ever took one photography class. Um, so it, for me, it was a combination of screwing a lot of stuff up and looking at it and trying to figure out how to fix it. And I was incredibly lucky to find what I've learned after the fact were some incredible mentors. Um, these were working photographers at the time that, um, I wouldn't even say took me under their wing, but they, they gave me the time of day. If I had a question, <clears throat> excuse me, if I had a question, they would listen to the question. And for a long time, I used to think they just enjoyed torturing me because I didn't realize really what they were doing. But after they listened to my question, they'd ask me 10 more questions. And by the time they got done asking me questions, I had figured out the answer to my own question. I found that annoying because I just wanted the answer. But what they were doing was two things. One, they were teaching me the critical thinking that was necessary. And two, they were teaching me that I was actually capable of answering it myself, that I didn't need to ask them. And if I reached the point as they're asking me questions where they realized I did not have the knowledge base to answer that question, then it would be a brief moment of, come here, let me show you something. And they'd go and they'd demonstrate something or show me how something worked. And then it was right back to the questions. It was never, here's your answer, right? Um, but it was it was great learning experience. You know, as frustrating as it was at the time, it, and, and I just thought, it, honestly, at first, I thought it was kind of a photographer thing because there were three or four photographers that I would run into routinely and talk to, and they all kind of did the same thing. And we've lost we've lost a lot of that learning ability today. And I'm, I'm all about technology. I'm all about the internet. I, I, I'm sitting here in front of three big computer screens and a huge computer. I, I, everything that we have with this technology is incredible. But part of what it's also done is it's given us so many incredible resources that we get lazy 
in terms of problem solving and in terms of actually learning because like, oh, I can just go watch a video or, oh, there's bound to be something in Google. And there's a few disconnects. Number one, we, because there's so many resources, we are pretty confident we can just find the answer. We're not going to have to think about it. We're not going to have to consider it. We're just going to find the answer. And then what we have is an answer without actual learning or context because adults, humans, we learn better from doing than we do from reading and memorizing. Those are two completely separate parts of the brain. So um, again, it's a little bit of, you know, kind of being lucky about the timing and then meeting some right people. But my photography education has just been really kind of self-driven. And still to this day, it is. I'm a firm believer the day that I stop learning, I'm done. Just put the cameras away, you know, move on to something else. That's for me what makes it exciting. Yeah. So every day is a school day. Yep. Um, yep. And I, I'm I'm still learning my craft. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm yeah. I'm loving doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So, what happened when you graduated graduated high school? So when I finished high school, I was incredibly lucky and i landed a job as a chief photographer of a small town newspaper um was about 40 minutes from where i grew up and i was responsible for a staff of five photographers as an 18 year old kid who had no clue about managing people um (laughs) but fortunately these guys tolerated me and um it was it was a great great learning experience um just you know it was um late 70s photojournalism was in its heyday newspapers were using pictures big and using lots of pictures um so photography was very much a priority in the news gathering business and we we covered everything i mean we chased car accidents we chased fires we, we chased everything um it was all about showing it and mm. so it was also just, you know, continue to be great learning experience, you know, every single day going out and, and illustrating news stories. And um, I've always kind of connected with photographing people. My, my logo and my tagline is I shoot people. Um, mm. So what the newspaper business really taught me was about people in general, because as a newspaper photographer, you were walking into other people's lives um, for, shall we say, 10 minutes at a time. But you, most of the time, were walking into other people's lives at the highest of highs, if you were lucky, more often than not, the lowest of lows, where they don't really want you there in the first place. Yeah. So you... I guess guess newspapers, it's bad news sells and, and good news. Is... Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the good news stuff was usually feature stories, which were fun because you get to spend more time with the subject. You can be more creative. You can do a little bit more planning. So you got a little bit uh, more opportunity to kind of, um, to be creative, to put a little bit of yourself into the story mm-hmm. um, with the news stuff the stuff that's, you know, kind of happening and, and has that immediacy to it. Yeah. At that point, it's kind of like, you know, getting onto a roller coaster without a seatbelt or a lap bar and you just, you hang on for dear life and your job is find that, that moment, that moment that tells the story. And yeah. you try to be creative 
in terms of finding really good lighting or finding a really interesting camera angle. But in those kind of situations, that's not always possible. Mm-hmm. So the moment trumps everything. It's, you know, find that moment that really illustrates, you know, what, what's happening. So I guess you have to have a really, really good eye to start with. Uh, to look you at do, and you you develop you know it. How to take the shot. Yeah, you and, you develop uh, that that technique and and that skill. Um, I, I think that for me as a photographer, that that concept of a good eye, um, I think it's a never ending process because mm. part of the challenge is you know I find today like I I'm known ironically for really creative photography and. I don't consider myself to be super creative. I could name a hundred photographers that I, I admire and even hate a little bit because they're so talented. I can't see the world the way they see it. But one of the challenges that I find at my age, and I think the way that I approach it is what helps me so much. Every time I pick up a camera, there's automatically a little bit of kind of been there, done that because I've been shooting for so long and I photographed so many different things, it would be really easy to just kind of draw on a prior experience with that subject matter and think, oh, okay, well, I know I can do this or I can do that. But that also would make my images very predictable. And that for Mm -hmm. me is boring. So it's kind of a nonstop challenge. I'll listen to the been there, done that in my head. And that's exactly what I won't do. So, you know, then my challenge is, okay, so how can I approach this subject matter, but I can't do what I did before? You know, this is how I've handled it in the past. I've got to find a completely different way to do it. And that kind of helps keep me fresh. It helps keep me looking at new ideas. And just like having a good eye, that's a skill set that that's something you practice. It's like a muscle. You have to keep working on it. Yeah. And it's that idea of just almost intuitively looking for different ways to connect the dots and that helps make your pictures stand out because they're not what people are expecting to see. Yeah. So let's just take you back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you've got a job on this little provincial newspaper. You've mm-hmm. got five uh, photographers working mm-hmm. for you. Yep. Back in that day, it's all wet film, I guess. Oh yeah. So, so did you have somebody dedicated to, um, to the darkroom work? To, to, to no, we all did our own. We all did our own. We were a small paper, um, and you know, we all did our own. Uh, two of the photographers were part-time photographers. Uh, three of us were full-time. Uh, but yeah, we all all did all of our own darkroom work. So, take us through a sort of a typical day at that time. So. You, you rock up in the morning. You, mm-hmm. I guess you have a a, a meeting in the morning, uh, and then I guess the editors will give you what they want for that day shoot. Or, or um, close, use. yeah. Well, uh, we didn't necessarily have meetings in the morning, but uh, as a photographer, if you were working a day shift, you would come in in the morning, and there was a spot in the newsroom that you would go to to find out what assignments were in for the day. And uh, it literally was just a little rack. There was seven rows, one for each day of the week. And um, the various editors who were tasked with generating assignments, you know, it might be the sports editor, might be a features editor or news editor or whatever. They would simply fill the assignments out on little 
printed three by five cards, no cards, and they drop them in the bin. So you come in in the morning and you, you know, pull everything out of the bin, see what you had for the day. Um, and, um, that would kind of give you a sense of, okay, this is what this day is going to involve. Uh, given that, you know, we didn't have computers and internet and things like that. Once you knew what your assignments were, you may be going and checking maps to figure out how long is it going to take me to drive someplace and, you know, what's the route to get there. Um, you may, if it's a feature story, be going and talking to the writer who's writing that story to get a sense of kind of what their angle is, what they're trying to show, even to learn more about the subject if they've already, because frequently the story would already actually be written or the interview would be done and the writer would be working on the story when they assign you to go out. You wouldn't necessarily go out with the writer. So mm -hmm. at that point, you know, it's a matter of talking to the writer, getting a sense of, okay, you know, what, what can I expect when I, when I go here? Uh, what's this person like? Uh, so it's, you know, a little bit of kind of research on the assignments, kind of just getting your head wrapped around. This is what's involved. Um, if you're going to be in the road most of the day, like if the assignments are close enough together that you're going to leave the building and then probably not come back till the end of your shift, you want to make sure you've got enough film with you that you, you know, have got all the right gear. Um, so it was kind of, you know, planning time. And then um, if you actually had downtime, um, you would go and hang out in the, the dark room you know we had a small office outside the dark room you go hang out down there just to stay out of the fray upstairs mm -hmm. um but um you know that time might be for filing it might be for you know putting stuff away all that kind of stuff busy work yeah so the the newspaper itself then was that a daily newspaper or did it go yep. once a week yeah it was, it was daily, a daily. daily newspaper so yep. you're also then I, I guess having to work the timelines Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you always, you have deadlines in that sense. So it was, we were a, a Monday through Friday daily. We didn't publish on the weekends. Um, when I first started with them, it was afternoon publication. So the paper hit the streets usually like between I think two and four in the afternoon. So our deadline was like late morning. Um, for about a year, they switched over to an AM publication, which was just brutal. Um, so that meant the paper hit the street at like 6am in the morning. So our press deadline, or excuse me, our, our content deadline was like 2am in the morning. That's mm -hmm. when like everything had to be upstairs on the boards. Um, and yeah, that, that was, that was the worst. I mean, it would never fail. Um, there would be like a car accident or a fire at 1am in the morning. And so you, you know, you would get sent out photograph this and you get back and you've got you know 15 minutes until deadline so that's what we used to we used to call that printing wet and so we would develop the film we wouldn't dry it properly mm. we would basically um put it under a sink on a piece of glass and run water and then slide the film onto the glass the water would create a seal and then we take that and we put that in the enlarger and you had about five minutes to print it before you'd start to see bubbles between the film and the glass. Um, so you print it wet. And then while the print was drying to go upstairs, you'd take the film and the glass, put it back underwater, separate it, and then hang the film up and dry it the way that you normally would have done it. Mm you know, in the first place, but it was all things to kind of cut corners and be able to get a print because we actually had to physically make prints 
which they yeah. then put in front of a big process camera to make the page negatives so that they could burn the plates for the printing press. Mm. So they had the print press on site then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's all, yep. all done in-house. Yep. And uh, Yeah. I mean, back in the day, if you had a newspaper, you had a printing press. Now um, there are massive printing facilities that will print – seven, eight, nine, ten different newspapers and they truck them to where mm. they're going. Yeah, so I guess uh, from your point of view, I mean, deadlines are a nightmare. Um, it's just something you got used to. It, you yeah. know, it's kind of one of the things. It, it went with the, the job territory. You know, there were good days and there were bad days, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was um, – I think for me, newspaper photography where I started – the fun of it was the challenge. I mean, you were trying to take pictures frequently in situations where people didn't want you to take pictures. You were photographing against competition because there were lots of newspapers. So you had competition mm. for big news stories. Um, you know, you were working on deadlines. Um, so every day was kind of a challenge and that's what I really you know, really enjoyed about it. If I went to work and my first assignment of the day was, we used to call them grip and grins, which would be like, you know, somebody <laughs> presenting a check to an organization, you know, it's like, yeah, that's kind of where the groan is like, oh, you know, it's yeah. like, there's no challenge in that. Um, they're just kind of boring. You know, you know, it's always going to be the same size in the paper. It's yeah. always going to be down towards the bottom of the page. Kind of nobody cares, you know, um, but it was for the stuff that was challenging. That's what made the job you know, really yeah. exciting. And I guess you get a byline on every image that oh, yeah. you get published. Yep. Yep. So, uh, and, and that's honestly, it's the byline that got me hooked on, mm. on doing newspaper work when I was 14 and I had the picture published in the paper. It was the byline, uh, like seeing my name on the front page of the paper, you know, the, and, and so the 14 year old mind at the masthead on the top of the page, right underneath the name of the paper, it said read by 22,000 people daily. Right. Yeah. So the 14 year old mind sees my name under a picture read by 22,000 dailies. Like, wow, 22,000 people know I took that picture. Like, <laughs> like they all read the byline. Right. But, but that's, you know, that was the connection. And that was, that was kind of like the drive behind all of it because it was this kind of feeling of satisfaction. It's like, look, I did that. And everybody knows I did that. Mm. Um, which I don't know what that says about me at the time, but, but at least <laughs> I, I'll admit that was kind of, that was the drive. And um, I, I think, I think almost any photographer you talk to at any age, especially, you know, at, at my age or older, even yeah. they'll acknowledge that bylines never get old. You know, mm -hmm. they, they just don't. I had a, a, a German magazine um, come out a few days ago with an article that I did and I got the cover and the whole bit. And, it never gets old, right? I don't, I don't chase the byline like I used to because as a newspaper photographer, yes, it was all about get that incredible shot and make sure I had your name on it. Um, yeah. I, I don't live for bylines anymore, but I still get the same rush anytime I have mm -hmm. a byline. I mean, it's, it's a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. So how long was you at the paper for before you moved on? Um, I guess I stuck with about five years. I, I got married very young. I was 20 when I got married, um, had a son when I was 22 and then started to realize that newspaper work for me, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't a job. 
mm. um, kind of very much who I was. And it was really not ideal for family and raising a son and everything. So I got this really brilliantly stupid idea that uh, I would start a portrait and wedding business and start doing portraits and weddings. And so that's what I did. Right. So how did you set up on your own then? Did you, did you um, get a shop or I was fortunate enough to find a spot that I could use as a studio uh, very inexpensively and um, took out an ad in the yellow pages, which is what photographers did for advertising in the what mid 1980s at that point. And um, pretty much fell flat on my face. Um, I mean, I hustled, <laughs> I did a lot of networking, but um, I had really no idea about how to build a business or run a business. And uh, I was, again, very lucky to find a mentor. Um, the mentor happened to be a loan manager at a bank who had given me a loan and then who was tasked with repossessing the car uh, that was attached to that loan. And he showed me a lot of mercy and a lot of empathy. And he told me that if I showed up at his office the next morning with all of my books, my accounting, and if I agreed to come back once a month and sit down with him until the loan was paid off, um, he let me keep the car. And he basically taught me how to run a business, uh, saved my hide big time. And I turned it around and had a very successful portrait and wedding studio. Um, but if it had not been for that man's generosity with his time, and this was back at the time where, uh, especially small town banks, you know, the loan officers, mm -hmm. if, if they had to repossess a car or something like that, they actually had to go out with the guy in the tow truck. It's not like now where you have companies that go out and do all this mm -hmm. repo stuff. So, you know, they were, they were kind of on the hook for their reputation within the bank if the loan failed. So, um, he saw it as part of his responsibility to help me succeed. So the loan didn't fail, which was incredible um, and really saved my hide big time. So how long did you have that business for? Um, well, I did studio work. So that business evolved, but I did studio work, <clears throat> gosh, probably well into um, the mid-90s. Um, I say it evolved. So one of the things that I frequently tell people sincerely is I'm not sure what I'm going to do when I grow up. I really am not. I do know <laughs> there will be a camera involved. There's always been a camera involved. So um, the portrait and wedding stuff, I say was at the core of what I was doing for about five years and I didn't stop doing it. But what I started doing is I just happened to pick up, um, a couple of commercial advertising clients and was really kind of enjoying that and getting really excited about that. And then started doing more and more of that and started chasing fewer and fewer portrait and wedding projects. Um, eventually did stop taking portraits and wedding. Well, not portraits, but stop taking weddings altogether. But by that time um, I was also starting to do some food photography, which was kind of a natural spinoff from the commercial advertising stuff because I had, found a, a client that was a, a national uh, chicken processor uh, and I was doing all of their advertising work. And um, so it, it's always kind of been, you know, an evolving thing. So the studio work went well into kind of the mid nineties. And by that time, even 
it was still studio work, but I was starting to do a lot of fashion photography. Mm. Um, I had made some connections and had picked up a couple clients still in the eighties, but that was starting to pan out into other things and other projects. And, um, you know, by mid nineties, I was doing a lot of fashion. And then by early two thousands, uh, the fashion industry was going through a lot of changes, just like the newspaper industry had gone through a lot of changes. So I started kind of evolving that skill set. And instead of going after publication work, I was doing more work with models and shooting modeling portfolios and helping models develop and get their careers launched. So again, it's always kind of always mm. been an evolution. So the studio stuff, it really started, you know, it, in the, um, the mid eighties and it's kind of just kept evolving since. And I've, from that time, I've primarily been a studio shooter primarily. Mm. Yeah. So have you, you got into the, like the big studios with, um, with no floor. So everything's sort off. Of, you're yep. shooting like cars and stuff like that. And, and you get totally confused in the room where, where <laughs> <laughs> you don't know which way is up. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. I've, I've never owned a studio that's big enough to shoot a car, but uh, I have done motorcycles in my studios. So, yeah. Hmm. So when, when did you come across to digital? Uh, pretty early, was, uh, the year what 2000. What was your first digital co camera? Well, my very first digital camera was actually in the 1990s, probably 1997 or so. And it was not a professional camera, but it was a digital camera. It was a Sony Mavica. It was one of the cameras where you actually put the floppy disk in the camera. Um, <laughs> one of the little square, you know, three and a half inch floppy yeah. disks that we use for our computers. You actually put that in and that was the, the media that the camera recorded to. But my first professional digital camera was the Nikon D1. It's the first pro digital camera that Nikon released. And that was in the year 2000. Um, and I very quickly gave up on film very quickly. Mm. Uh, I, for me, the, the, the separation between the two is, you know, obviously I knew film. I loved film. I was confident and comfortable with film, but with film, when you press the button, the picture is essentially done. And if you're shooting black and white, you can manipulate it a little bit in the dark room, but if you're shooting color transparencies, slides, that's done. That's the picture. Mm. Digital from the very beginning opened up all of these possibilities. And, you know, a lot of the work that you see on my website is work that when I pressed the button, I was maybe 50% of the way to completion of the shot. The remaining work was being done in post-production in Photoshop by adding backgrounds, manipulating things, changing things. Um, now, to be clear, for photographers that hear that, that may be kind of new to the process, that doesn't mean you just kind of shoot whatever and you figure it out later. That's not the mm. way you get the pictures. So on those times where I'm pressing the button and I'm only 50% of the way to the end, I know where that 50% is coming from when I press the button. Uh, if I'm going to change the background, as an example, yeah. I've got the new background sitting on a computer in the studio so that I can look at the images and make sure that the lighting blends together properly and you know everything's gonna fit right, that type of stuff. So it's not just kind of by chance, it's, it's a planned thing, but it allows me to really expand the toolkit 
of what I can do creatively with an image. Now, certainly if I was shooting news, I can't do that. Right. But since I'm, you know, I'm doing this creative work at this point and most of my work now is geared towards being able to teach, which is why I do the creative stuff to really get attention. Um, I, I can, you know, I can go in any direction that I want with the images. Mm. So Adobe Photoshop, Mm-hmm. I guess that came along at around about the same sort of time as the digital cameras. Yeah, actually a little bit before, believe it or not. Uh, mm. I, I think Photoshop first came out in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, I started using Photoshop right about the time I got the Nikon D1. So it was right around 2000. Yeah. So did you go on a course for it did, or did you just try and pick it up as you went along just, and, and try yeah, and just pick it up it as I went along? Photoshop is, I, I have bought a couple books early on. I bought a couple books um, and then quickly realized that was a big waste of money because while the books were very good, mm. uh, Photoshop is an incredibly advanced piece of software. And I don't, I don't set to scare people away, but that's what makes it cool. Yeah. You could take any technique um, and you could go to a bookstore and pull four books off the shelf and you'll find at least three different ways to accomplish the same thing. Or yeah. you could take any technique and you go to YouTube and probably find a hundred videos on that technique. And out of that hundred videos, you'll probably be able to find six, seven, or eight different techniques that all do the same thing. So the, the real key to learning Photoshop, and again, People tend to be lazy, so they look for shortcuts, and that's why they really mm. keep struggling. Um, they want to find a video that says, yes, the best way to do it is this way. Just do that. Mm. And the problem of it is is that only helps you with that particular picture that has that particular look, et cetera. The key to learning Photoshop is really just taking the time to really understand what every little slider or control actually does to your image. Because unfortunately, a lot of them aren't obvious. Mm. Um, People think they're obvious. Like there's a slider called contrast. Well, okay, you would expect that plus means more contrast, minus means less contrast. Well, that is exactly what it does. But what that doesn't tell you is that when you use the contrast slider, it's impacting every tone and every color in your image by the same amount, which means 99.9% of the time, it never looks good. But right underneath the contrast slider are two sliders called highlights and shadows, which is basically what makes up contrast. (laughs) So, So the smart way to really mess or alter the contrast in your image is not with a contrast slider, but with the highlights and shadows because you have more control over it. So... Once you understand what the sliders do, and and I mean, really understand them, it's actually very easy to look at an image and say, okay, you know, I I want more of this or less of that, and then know exactly what you're going to need to do it. And then once you've established, okay, so I need to change the highlights, that's fine. Then the other challenge is in learning Photoshop, uh, I always refer to the cooking shows. Whenever you watch the cooking shows, and it comes time for them to put the seasoning on, the chef always says, flavor to taste. That's their mm-hmm. phrase. And, and that's really a big part of Photoshop. There's no one setting or one um, power of setting 
that accomplishes everything you need all the time. So mm. as long as you understand what the settings do, it's really a matter of flavor to taste. How do yeah. you want the, you know, the finished image to look? Um, how did you get to where you are nowadays? Teaching, teaching right. Okay. So um, I think we're going on about nine years at this point. I was invited to teach a workshop and honestly didn't really think people would be interested in hearing me teach a workshop, but I did it and um, enjoyed it. Got a lot of good feedback. So started doing some more teaching at local camera clubs and things like that. And just kind of building up some momentum. I was getting a lot of requests to teach. And then there was also this thing called YouTube out there. And my mind started connecting dots. And I thought, wow, like the challenge with teaching and making money at it, camera clubs don't pay a lot. They don't have mm. a big budget. And only people in, you know, southeastern Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area really know about me. So I thought, wow, maybe I could use this platform called YouTube to create demand, um, put out some tutorials and videos, and that, you know, creates the opportunity for people to um, hear me teach, see what I have to say, et cetera. So I started the YouTube channel uh, with no intentions of being a YouTuber. Again, it was the idea of essentially create these videos that would basically become auditions, if, for lack of a better phrase. And the YouTube channel took <laughs> off. Um, so it's like, okay. You know, I guess that's a good problem to have. So I stuck with it for a couple of years while I was building up the teaching opportunities <clears throat> because I wanted to teach at the big trade shows. I wanted to teach for camera clubs. I wanted to really teach anywhere there was an opportunity to teach. And um, it just took off, really. And the pandemic, ironically, for me, turned out to be this this almost like silver lining kind of scenario because once everything went virtual, that also opened up opportunities to teach all around the world. So I've been doing presentations for camera clubs in the UK, Australia, um, South America, Canada, all over the place. Um, because now everybody knows how to use Zoom. Um, yeah. Even though the world's opening up and camera clubs are going back to in-person meetings, they've also realized, wow, like if we invest in a big screen TV and internet access, we can have speakers from all over the world. So, you know, not just in-person speakers that are local to us. Mm. Um, so it's actually, it's kind of worked out great. And that's literally what I do full time. And, and so the payoff, the bonus for me now at this age, I shoot what I want to shoot, when I want to shoot it, how I want to shoot it. And my client is essentially my teaching. Mm. So when I shoot everything I'm doing, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of what, what, lesson can I illustrate with this? What can I use this for from a teaching standpoint? Um, and that's how I justify, you know, for myself from a business standpoint, as long as I can tie it to a lesson that I can then either monetize that lesson online or, you know, do it as a presentation, mm -hmm. then it's a worthwhile, you know, piece of effort for me to put in to create that shot. So you, 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 you got into YouTube as well then. Yep. And, and again, YouTube, you know, I don't do the YouTube tutorials anymore. I, literally from the beginning, my intent was to show people what I can do. But what I do at this point is essentially a video podcast. Every Wednesday evening, 6 p.m. in the U.S., uh, I do a 60-minute live stream called The Last Frame. And um, it's part 
a little lesson or editorial part Q and a, um, you know, I, I'm really big on, you know, trying to help people with the problem solving and, and really more than anything, trying to, trying to teach people the problem solving aspect. Um, again, I said this earlier, but because of all these great resources we have, we kind of get a little bit lazy with the way we seek answers to things. And so, especially in the photography world, um, new photographers will tend to ask very open-ended questions that will get them a lot of opinions, but mm. not really the help that they need because they haven't, the, the person asking the question hasn't provided enough context. Yeah. So I'm a stickler when I do my Q and A's. It's like, I, you know, if I answer this, I'm just going to give you an opinion about what I do. And that's not going to help you. Tell me more about what you're doing. Let's get the context. And sure enough, 99% of the time, by the time I get the context, the answer that I would have given as an opinion is nowhere near the answer that really helps them. Yeah. And, and by doing that, I can also help them avoid a lot of the mistakes that they may make based on mistakes that I've made, you know, mm. in, in trying to learn how to do it. So. so would you go back to doing any wet film? Nah, no desire. I always joke uh, that one of the lessons I give photographers is don't use four letter words. Remember what your mama taught you. And, and that's referring to things like rules. Uh, it's referring to things like auto for a camera. And then I always finish that with the joke of film. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm really glad, really glad that I learned on film. Again, mm -hmm. I, I said before, it, it created a discipline which has been tremendously helpful. But um, my, my wife is a college professor. Her college has a dark room and I have access to use it. And once every year and a half or so, I say to myself, ah, you know what? I should just go buy some paper and I should go do it. <laughs> and then five minutes later, I'm like, what are you thinking? Like, no, <laughs> like, I, you know, I just, I, I don't have the patience to go back and do it. I love the immediacy of of digital. I think it's great. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in the idea, you know, the world evolves, right? Not to get really corny, but it does. The world evolves. And, and I think most of that evolution is good. And even when that evolution is bad, fortunately, as a human race, we tend to kind of work it out over time. Yeah. Frequently takes longer than it should, but, but we kind of <laughs> tend to work it out. Right. Um, I, I think we're so, from a creative standpoint, we're so blessed with all this technology we have right now. So yeah. blessed um, that film just doesn't make sense to me anymore. And I understand there's a whole new generation of photographers that are just completely enamored with film. And I think it's wonderful because yeah. I understand the benefits they're getting, but I have no desire to go back there. Can't say I'll blame you too much. Yeah. So, final question. Sure. Mac or PC? Mac all the way. But I was slow to get there. Um, I've been a Mac user for probably about eight years now, which in the photography world means that I was a PC user much longer than I should have been. Um, mm. I always struggled just looking at the price tag on Mac. Could not justify it and... Finally, there was a, a photographer who had been to a couple of my workshops and he made the mistake of admitting that he used to work for Mac. That's why it took so long, but he made it his mission. He was going to get me to switch. And 
what the final tipping point was, I would always argue like, look, I can buy a PC for a fraction of the cost. And he would come back and he'd say, yeah, but how often do you upgrade your PCs? And because I wanted this speed and because software was getting bigger and bigger and you needed the processing power, I would always upgrade my PCs like every 18 months when the processors took a big jump. And he said, that right there is the point. He said, you buy a Mac, you won't upgrade it for five years. I was like, no way. He's like, talk to people that use Macs and just simply ask them the question, how often do you upgrade? So I did. I actually started doing that. I started talking to photographers that were using Macs and universally, every one of them without hesitation said easily five years. Your computer will last you easily five years. So at that point, when you started to do the math, the Mac was actually cheaper. Cost more money up front. That part was painful, but the Mac was actually cheaper. And sure enough, that has been the case. Most of my Macs, I go easily six years, almost six years before I I do an upgrade. In fact, I just upgraded recently. Uh, For the first time in my life now, I'm only using a laptop. Now I have big screens here to work on, but yeah. I'm using one of the the new MacBook Pros with the M1 Max, and this machine is a beast. I absolutely love <laughs> it. So, yeah. well, I'm I'm on an M1 iMac. That's there you go. The 24 inch one. Yep, I absolutely love it. Yep, and I was using a a, um, a MacBook Air. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, I had a MacBook Pro. Yep. But I, I found the problem with those because I do a bit of video as well. Right. You get the fans kicking in all the time. Yep. With the M1 iMac, can't even hear it. Yeah. And it's just terrific. Yeah. And it, it does the job for me. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing with the thing with Mac computers, they just work. And that's what you yeah. want. Right. Oh, the the trouble I had with with Windows computers, you wouldn't believe. Um, yeah. uh, particularly, I, I used to do a bit of um, video quite a long time ago, and I was using mm-hmm. using the Windows machine, and it just wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. And yeah. and then this is this is oh Christ, around about two thousand ish. Must have been about two thousand, maybe earlier than that. I got the the G four dual gig mm-hmm. Mac transform. What I did, yeah, it just just worked. And I haven't yep. looked back since. And I've had Macs ever since. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So PCs, unfortunately, they they require. You know, they work, but they require a lot of maintenance to yep. you know to keep them working. And and I need the computer. I need to be able to turn it on and do what I have to do. So, yeah. There we go. We we <laughs> we thrashed that one out. Yep. Joe, fascinating story. Loved it. Well, thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, you're most welcome. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.